0: good morning church good morning all right um, i would love to ask you all to stand as we read from god's word. So we'll be in mark chapter 14 mark chapter 14 so uh as you find that just by way of uh introduction briefly i do want to say uh it is an honor uh to be here with you all so uh, y'all don't know me but i know your pastor Um, And I pray for you all often. So I do have a deep love and affection in my heart for each and every one of you when I count it a distinct uh, honor and pleasure and privilege uh, to be here. I, uh, as somebody who, um, and we're not going to go into uh, much depth on this, but um, I started pastoring uh, at 22 years old right out of college. Uh, I'll turn 39 next month. Um, and I resigned from my church at the end of last year nothing wrong it was just uh, time for me to move on and um, 16 years of pastoring uh, and my wife and I have been married for 15 um, years and uh, pastoring is a unique uh, call that God graces uh, us for but it is a unique weight uh, that It's just different. And so uh, I want you to know that in allowing your pastor to have uh, some time to rest, you have blessed his wife and his children and his friends immensely. So just as a former pastor and a pastor's kid uh, to a church, I just want to tell y'all thank you. Thank you. All right. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, so it's going to be a little different than what you may see on the screen, but it all tracks out. Let's read. It says this. Uh, Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. These little lines are the things that make me know that the Bible is real. You know what it feels like to fall asleep on somebody when they're saying something important, and you just look at them, and they look at you, and you really don't have anything to say, right? Mark just says that right there. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time, and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you today confident that you are a God that speaks. We have your word in our hands and on our phones. And because we have uh, access to it all the time, Father, it's easy uh, for us to forget just how powerful It is, Lord, your word um, or the words that created the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars, gravity, the laws that govern the universe, Father. It is powerful. It has the power to change each and every one of us in here to the point where we walk out different than how we came, Father. We ask that you would do that. We pray for your power through this brief time that we spend in your words. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't y'all you take your seat? Uh, me and Pastor L and Philip, we all went and grabbed a bite to eat last night and they came a point where they asked me about books and so I just started to throw off you know, some of the books that I've read through the course of this, uh, these years. And I, so I read a lot and I read widely. And every so often you come across a quote from a philosopher uh, that is so powerful and profound and pithy and simple that it changes the way you view life forever. All right, So I'm about to share with you a quote from one of my favorite philosophers, and it goes like this, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. The philosopher was Mike Tyson, and uh, Mike Tyson said it on the eve of this big fight. Uh, There was a reporter that came to him, and what he said was, hey, what are you going to do? Your opponent, he's big, he's strong, he can move side to side very fast. What are you going to do, Mike? And Mike says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. What Mike was trying to say was that everybody thinks that they're stronger than they are until adversity runs into them. Uh, Figuratively, um, I got punched in the mouth a little more than eight years ago. I was speaking at a conference, um, and I went out to dinner with some friends of mine, and as we're out there, I get repeated phone calls from my mom. It's my mom, so I send her the voicemail, um, and she keeps calling. So I step outside, and I call, and she's like, hey, um, I need you to check in on your brother. I can't get a hold of him. Uh, At the time, my brother was a 32-year-old pastor in Memphis. and um, So I get on the phone, and I try to call around. And uh, after a few calls, I get in touch with my godbrother. And my godbrother says, man, Sam passed away. I thought he said Sam passed out. And so I said, Wake him up. And and he's like, No, 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 no. Sam passed away. And instantly, right, this is eight years ago. I still remember the reaction of the people sitting outside of that Longhorn Steakhouse. I still remember the smells. I still remember my knees buckling together before I fell to the ground. And the death of my brother eight years ago was the second biggest surprise of my life. And the reason why I say the second biggest surprise of my life is because the first biggest surprise of my life would take place in the months after. So my brother died six weeks before I started the most previous church that I pastor. And I was shocked at how quickly everything I believed about the goodness of God crumbled. It surprised me, somebody who had spent his whole adult life convincing people that God is good, that God is wise, that God is kind, that God could be trusted. I was shocked at how quickly all of that fell apart. C.S. Lewis, when he was reflecting on the death of his wife, put it like this. He said, you and I, we tend to think that our faith is like a temple. But then we find out that it's really nothing more than a house of cards. That's how I felt. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And the reason why I bring that up is that if you haven't already, adversity is going to hit you in the same way. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is this journey. It's one part manifesto, one part memoir of this God who is struggling with the idol and the danger of prosperity i have everything that i ever wanted and i still feel empty and he has to struggle through that there's a few of y'all in this room and that's going to be your struggle you're going to get everything that you want and you're going to find out that it's not what you hoped for and you're gonna have to struggle through prosperity um that's not all of us that's not most of us every one of us is going to find ourselves in unexpected adversity. And when those tidal waves of adversity sweep over you, nobody goes through it like an Olympic swimmer. Everybody does all that they can to simply wade that water. So I'm up here just to say, instead of daydreaming about prosperity, one of the most important things that you and I need to do is to spend our time preparing for adversity how will you respond how will you remain faithful how will you stay afloat when this unexpected adversity blindsides you It's important for all of us it's especially important for those of us in here that have any type of leadership responsibility whether you're a pastor or a deacon or a parent or an employer or an older sibling because what you'll find out is that you do not live in a vacuum the people that look up to you think that you're cut from some different cloth than they are, but the reality is you're not. But what you do in moderation, they'll do in excess. So it is important and vital that we all wrestle with this question, how do we strengthen our hands for service and faithfulness to God when an adversity or adversities plural are going to come in ways that we never expected it what's the key I think we find the key here in Mark chapter 14 let's set a little bit of context before we get in there this story of the prayer in the garden is sandwiched in between these other two stories One, it's sandwiched in between the last supper and the actual betrayal in the garden. So it is sandwiched in between the disciples, giving their aspiration of how strong they'll stand in a time when they run away. And here's what takes place at the last supper. Jesus comes and he gives the disciples an invitation to be weak. Jesus tells them about his pending suffering and the fact that they're all going to be cowards and run away So what Jesus says is no 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 no. forget living up to my standards You aren't even going to live up to your own standards But he doesn't say it as an insult or as an indictment. He says it as a means of security He's saying hey listen you're not as strong as you think that you are. I know the worst about you, but that's the reason why I'm gonna go to the cross. That me knowing the worst about you does not disillusion me about you in the way that J.I. Packer says, you and I are so often disillusioned about ourselves. What an amazing God that we serve, that knows the worst about us and invites us in. Talk about security, talk about love, talk about friendship. But although Jesus gives them an invitation to be weak, uh, Peter, James, and John don't return the RSVP. Here's what Peter says. Peter essentially says, Jesus, you can save your prayers I've got my resolve. I've got my determination. James and John in Mark 10, as they're walking, as Jesus is walking to Jerusalem to face his death, James and John basically pull Jesus off to the side and say, Hey, Jesus, uh, when you get into your kingdom, do you mind if we ride shotguns? And so Jesus, who has already done teaching and exposition on prayer, is going to realize um, that experience is going to be a greater teacher than any explanation could. Demonstration is going to be a little bit more powerful than declaration. So Jesus is going to demonstrate the power of prayer Do you know why? Because demonstration is powerful. When it comes to the definition of the word hot, a red stove is going to do a better job than any dictionary. When it comes to the power of prayer, a demonstration is going to do a better job than any sermon. And so here we are, Jesus is going to show us where true strength comes from. I've got three points. We'll think about it like we're trying to paint this wall. The very first thing that you do when you paint a wall is you throw on the primer. You just get it ready to make sure that the paint that you throw on sticks. After you throw on the primer, you're going to put on the paint. That's going to be the main point of the sermon. And then after that, you proceed out of the room. So primer, paint, uh, proceed. Here is the primer you aren't as strong as you think that you are you're not as strong as you think that you are all right mark chapter 14 we're going to read 32 to 34 and i'll stop along the way and it says this look then they came to a place named gethsemane stop right there that word literally means olive press so the oil that came from olives that was used to anoint kings and priests and sacrifices that Oil comes out of the olives, but only after the olives undergo a time of intense pressure. So Jesus is literally leading them, walking them into a place that means pressure. And so what that helps you and I see is this. Look, um, everything that feels bad to you isn't necessarily bad for you. Sometimes we find ourselves... In some of the most frustrating places in our lives, not because we're disobedient to God, but because we're following him. Jesus is going to lead them into this time of intense pressure. Look at the place, but look at the people that he brings with him. And he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. Verse 33. He took Peter, James, And John with him all right why those three why didn't he take all 12 why did he take those three do you know why he took those three because as you go through the Gospel of Mark it's these three at least when they hear about Jesus going to the cross they overestimate their strength they think they're cut from some different cloth and Jesus is gonna try to help them See, no, 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 wait a minute. You're not as strong as you think you are. Let me see if I can put it like this. Um, My daughter is six years old uh, right now. Um, When she was born, she was born at 30 weeks. She was three and a half pounds when she was born so a little old thing i could hold her in one hand spent three weeks with her in the nicu we had to wait until she reached four pounds so that we could put her in this smaller car seat and that car seat still swallowed her up so we bring her home and my wife's nephew jackson comes over um, and he looks at her jackson is two years old at the time so he stoops down and he looks at her and jackson starts to talk to her um not in his two-year-old voice, Jackson does his impression of what a baby would say and tries to talk to her like a baby. All right. Some people may think that's cute. I thought it was condescending, so I took Jackson over and I said, No, no, Jackson, um, I know you think you are different than her, but you are in fact a baby your subject verb agreement is atrocious it's awful and so i just spent time trying to explain to him no, no no listen jackson you think you're cut from a different cloth than her but you're not you're the same as her you're just as needy you're just as dependent i know you think you're different i know you're tempted to look down on her but i just want you to know that y'all are essentially the same jesus takes peter james and john and he says no no wait 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 I know you think because you're who you are that you're different than the rest. But no, 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 wait, wait. You're not as strong as you think that you are. And then look what he does here to people that profess their strength. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Verse 34. He said to them, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. All right, look, what takes place is that Mark, the author, is narrating this story. As a third-party narrator, what a narrator does is he gives us, you, the reader, x-ray vision into what goes on on the insides of the character in the story so that we know something about jesus that peter james and john don't know so it starts off here and mark says no no jesus is deeply grieved to the point of death so inside he's feeling this way and jesus even goes on to say no no I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. And Jesus is not one given to hyperbole or exaggeration, right? So when I haven't eaten in a few hours, I'll tell my wife, sweetheart, I'm starving. My stomach is touching my back. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it, right? That's not true. Jesus, when he says this, no, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death, he means it. There in the garden, think about it. It is, it's terrifying for you and I to have to stand in front of any courtroom and give an account to a judge knowing you and I would be guilty of a crime. Say you committed a crime. Say it was last night and you were speeding something crazy so fast that they threw you in jail. And you had to stand in front of a judge and give account. It's terrifying. Jesus is on the eve of giving an account not for his sin because he didn't have any but for the sins of the world. That thought alone is soul crushing so when he says i'm terrified or i'm grieved to the point of death he really means it because god never has and never will give just a warning for sin as if even the smallest sin is something that is benign he'll defer that punishment But he's storing it in this cup of wrath. And Jesus, on the eve of his death, knows that he has to drink this cup of wrath. And Mark tells us he's deeply grieved. And what is most powerful about this is, notice this. Mark tells us in verse 33, but then Peter tells James and John, or Jesus tells Peter and James and John in verse 34, I'm deeply grieved. the point of death stay here with me on the eve of his death the son of man is not pretending to be a superman he's not pretending to be somebody without fear he's being vulnerable he's sharing his weakness if the son of god can tell people that he is grieved and distressed and afraid what is it that makes you and I think that we have to pretend that those things don't affect us you and I tend to think that we impact people by the wisdom that we hurl at them but i want you to know that people in your life are often more impacted not by the weakness that you hurl at them from a distance but by the or, Or Not by the wisdom that you hurl at them from a distance, but by the weakness that you share with them when you're up close. Jesus models this and says, no, look, you're not as strong as you think that you are. That's the primer. And I want you to know that's some of the best news that you're going to hear all day. You're not as strong as you think that you are. That's the best news that you're going to hear all day. Do you know why? Because as soon as you embrace the fact that you're not as strong as you think that you are, you cry out for help to the one with true strength. So my sermon in a sentence is this. Do you know where true strength comes from? Where true strength to endure with faithfulness and resolve the unimaginable adversity, That is being Amazon-primed to your front doorstep as we speak, true strength comes from complete and total surrender. True strength comes from total surrender to God. We strengthen our hands for service by surrendering our hearts in prayer. Look here at verse 35. He went a little farther fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible the hour might pass from him and he said abba father all things are possible for you take this cup away from me nevertheless not what i will but what you will then he came and found them sleeping and he said simon are you sleeping couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Look at how he ties prayer with the strength to stand. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This story is about the context of Jesus' prayerfulness against the backdrop of the disciples' prayerlessness. So it's, it's the context of those two but this prayer is so good that we've got to dive into the content because in this prayer, we see what makes up all true prayer. And prayer is made up of at least two things confidence in God's ability and contentment in God's activity. Confidence in God's ability or cry for help, contentment in God's activity. Our source of hope. Here's the first: confidence in God's uh, ability. There is no prayer without this. Prayer begins with believing that God can do the impossible. Some of my favorite novels are by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes novels. One of the things that you love is, as you read those stories, you find out those stories are not written from the perspective of Sherlock or a third perdit or a third party narrator. Those stories are written from the perspective of Sherlock's bestie, John Watson, all right? So John Watson doesn't solve the crimes, Sherlock Holmes does. There was this one time where this lady walks in and she has this like unbelievable issue that went on, it seems impossible, and John Watson said this one line. What he said was this, um, so accustomed was I to Sherlock's invariable success that the very thought of him failing had ceased to enter my mind. He has said, I spent so much time with Sherlock Holmes that I forgot that he could fail, that when an impossible scenario came up, I didn't think, I wonder if he can solve this one I thought I wonder how he could solve this one his experience of Sherlock Holmes expanded the box of possibility I bring that up because you and I have God in a box we disbelieve that God can do certain things and then when God comes through And he saves that loved one that we've prayed for for a long time. Our box of God expands. When he heals that sickness that we thought that he couldn't heal, our box for God expands. As we have experience with God, our box uh, expands. Or like a professor I had in school would say, he said it like this, what God has done in the past is both a plan and a model of what he'll continue to do in the future, although he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Prayer begins with a belief that God can do the impossible, and while you and I need our boxes for God to expand, Jesus didn't have any such boxes. So as he is praying, He is praying in full confidence that there is some other. God, if there's any other way, I know that all things are possible for you. Prayer begins with a deep and abiding belief that God can do the impossible. But I want you to know this. Although prayer starts there, true peace is never found there. If you believe that God can do the impossible, and you need him to deliver you out of a scenario, and you say to yourself, the only way I'm going to be at peace is if God does the impossible for me in this way, you can pray all you want, but you'll never find peace. Here's what I mean. Here's the quickest way to discontentment. The quickest way to discontentment is for you and you and you and you and me and for all of us to hold God hostage to an outcome that he's never promised. It's like waiting in a Mississippi summer for a bus that's never coming. Jesus prays, God, all things are possible for you. But he says this. Ah, but not my will, but yours be done. He echoes the prayer of the three Hebrew boys in that fiery furnace. Oh, King, we know that God can save us. But even if he doesn't, our confidence in him is going to be unwavering. But I want you to know this. It's not like Jesus just uttered those 23 words and then got up and went to the cross. He persisted in what seemed to be the same prayer, which is instructive because it reminds us to persist in prayer to God for the same things doesn't mean that we lack faith, it means that we actually have it. Uh, four years ago, I got an invitation to speak in Orlando. My daughter was two years old. They said that they were going to take us to Disney. Um, so I made the mistake. Of Telling my daughter I was going to take her to Disneyland in November, but I broke the news to her in August Um, Two-year-olds do not have a great sense of time So for those next three months Every other conversation I had with my daughter was asking if we could get on the plane to go to Disney World well, i said was well, sweetheart not now in three months three minutes later she talked to you, and, and it's like i don't think you get how this whole time thing works why did my daughter persist did she disbelieve that i was going to take her no She kept on asking because she knew that apart from my intervention, she wasn't going to go, so she persisted. This is what the Lord Jesus is doing in the garden. He is persisting in prayer, wrestling his very heart into submission to the will of the Father, our heart's are stubborn, and Jesus is trying to help the disciples see that true strength is going to come from total and complete surrender, which starts with the confidence in God's ability, moves to a contentment with his activity, and is seen or made evident in the consistency by which we continue to bounce back and forth between those things. But I want you to remember the point of this story is not just the beautiful content of this prayer. The point of this story is the context. We're juxtaposing Jesus' prayerfulness with the disciples' prayerlessness. Look at how this pans out. They find themselves at the end of this story And do you remember how I told you this story was sandwiched in between the disciples' aspirations to be faithful and an actual instance where they could put those aspirations to the test? This story is sandwiched in between those two, and it's something like a vegetarian sandwich, right? Surrounded by promise with nothing but sadness and disappointment in the middle. So what you find here is, look. By the time the people come, Jesus meets them head on and the disciples are running away from people that aren't chasing them. And you say, where did that strength come from? Where did that cowardice come from? The difference here is Jesus's prayerfulness and their prayerlessness. Here's what I mean. Part of what makes prayer confusing is that, normally, God doesn't speak audibly. So we kind of have to piece together answers to prayer, and that can be confusing. Do you know what's not confusing? The providence of God. How things actually work out. Look here at verse 41. Then he came a third time saying, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Look at this last verse. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. What's interesting about this story is it seems as if Jesus is praying, God, if there's any other way. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, if there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. Yo, Peter, are you sleeping? Man, stay awake. God, if there's any other way, not my will, but yours be done. And it seems as if he looks up and sees a mob coming to him with furrowed brows, torches, and pitchforks. And he says, I guess God said no. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't even sit around and wait for them to come. He says, get up. Let's cut the distance. Let's shorten this. Let's hasten this. I'm so confident that this is God's will that I'm not even waiting for the trouble to come and find me. I'm going to go find that good trouble. Where does resolve or strength like that come from it comes from prayer listen if you think i'm making too much of this point i want you to realize jesus didn't just come into the world to die for our sins he came into the world to die a particular shameful agonizing death for our sins. A type of death that only existed in the history of the world for a very short period of time because the people who carried it out realized how inhumane it was do you know why we have these four Gospels in our Bible and not some of the many other Gospels that have been written There's a lot of works out there about the life of Jesus. What these four have in common is that each of them give at least a third of their words, some, half of the entire gospel, to the last week of Christ's life. Focusing on his crucifixion. So much so that one scholar said, it's as if the life and ministry as recorded in the Gospels are the prelude and the Passion Week is the climax or the main point of these stories. Dying on a cross is a very agonizing way to die. But do you know what's interesting? Literarily, do you know where the gospel authors place Jesus in the most agony? In the garden, on his knees. I'm not saying the cross wasn't agonizing. I'm saying that literally. These human authors, carried along by the Spirit, are writing in such a way where if they had Microsoft Word at this time, this little story would be in bold, underlined, italicized, 50-point font. Because as Jesus is on his way to the cross, one of the things that you notice is You are incredibly composed for somebody that is going to die a horrendous death. The authors paint him as he's blindfolded on the eve of knowing he's going to be crucified, being slapped around, and Jesus seems to still have enough juice in him to talk a little spicy back to the people that slap him. On the way to the cross, he's carrying this big cross on his back. Blood spilling from being whipped to where they got to pull this random cat off to the side to carry his cross. But he has enough presence of mind to look at his mom and say, Yo, mom, John's going to take care of you. John, would you take care of my mom? As he's on the cross, being spit on and cursed, he's, use, he's got enough composure to pray, Lord, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. With his final breaths, as his lungs are filling up with blood, and he is choking, he's using his last breaths to reassure a guilty yet repentant criminal that he'll be with him in paradise. Where does that kind of strength come from? While the disciples have dead bolted themselves in a room from people that aren't even chasing them, this strength comes from total and complete surrender. If you think I'm making too much of this point, You just got to turn your Bible a few pages over. And do you know what you see? You see these disciples who were running away from people that weren't chasing them, all go to very similar, brutal, agonizing deaths for the Lord. They're filled with all of this strength. They're people that pray they're people that have the strength what changed for them from this point to that do you know what changed not just that jesus died for their sins but that he rose he rose from the grave he got up he went through this Through the most unimaginable adversity, and he came out on the other side victorious, leaving them with his spirit, and now they've changed. Hear this, because of the resurrection. I bring all this up because a sermon on prayer usually leads people like me to feel very guilty. To ask at the end, John, what regiment do I need to put in a practice so that I can pray like Jesus? And I want you to know when it comes to our struggles with prayer, a regiment and routine is not the problem. When it comes to our struggle with prayer, it's not that we don't know how. I think we've run out of gas. Imagine a car stranded outside and you say, I've run out of gas. And the mechanic comes in and he goes straight to your dashboard and starts to fix your GPS. You would tell him, no, 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 no. I don't need directions. I need fuel. Here is the fuel. I want you to hear this. The way that you pray, the way that we pray, More so than the way that we do just about anything else reaffirms or undermines your belief that Jesus actually got up from the grave. The way that you pray reaffirms or undermines your belief that Jesus actually raised from the dead. Here's what I mean. Story for marriage. I've been married uh, 16 years. And I still don't know where the measuring cups are in my house. Does anybody else have that same problem? There's a few times where I'll go to my wife and I'll be like, hey, sweetheart, I'm trying to bake this thing. Where's the three-fourths cup? And she'll be like, John, we've been married for 16 years, and you still don't know where it is. There's some times where it's like, all right, I want to ask her this. I'm going to catch her when she's in a good mood. So she'll put down her Bible, and I'll see, sweetheart, Where's the cup and in the words of Christ, she'll be like, have I been with you this long? And you still don't know where the cups are, right? (laughs) But then there's times where she'll say this. um, She'll say, uh, John, what would you do if I weren't here? And I would think to myself, I wouldn't say this out loud. I've still been married 16 years. I would think to myself, well, if you weren't here, I would actually have to do the work of finding it myself. And if history is an indicator of the future, then I would work really, really hard, exhaust all my options, and I still wouldn't find it anyways. Why would I put myself through all that trouble when I could just trouble you? (laughs) I've been married for 16 years, so I don't say that. But I say to her, no, 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 but Chandra, you are here. You're here. And since you're here, can you just give me the answer? <laughs> Question. Pastor L's getting ready to go on sabbatical. What would you do? Just a series of hypothetical questions that I have. What would you do if he left? And he didn't come back? What's the first thing that you would do? Would you gather as a church? Would you start a pastoral search committee? Would you try to place him? Another hypothetical. What would you do if he left and whoever else here that was in charge of the money, uh, they left with all the money? What's the first, right? What's the first thing that you would think to, to do? Would you? get a lawyer would you try to track it down right what would you do what what would you do if here in the next few weeks redeemer exploded it uh, it grew all right sorry the first two were pretty tragic right it grew to the point where there was not a seat in the house And you're like, how are we going to connect all these people? What would you do? Would you think, all right, hey, we've got to ramp up our small groups. We've got to bring on our staff. What's the first thing that you would do? What would you do if you go to work tomorrow and you tell somebody, God bless you, as they sneeze? And you lose your job and get thrown in jail because you find yourself in a place where if you say anything remotely orthodox Christian, it could be the end what would you do would you bring in lawyers to consult you on how it is that you were what would you do if ethnic tension here in the life of this church threatened to rip the entire church apart at the seams what would you do if the summer of 2016 and the summer of 2020 um, came back And the church threatened to rip apart. What would you do? All right. Those are not hypothetical scenarios that I brought you through. All I did was walk y'all through Acts chapters 1 through 6. Acts chapter 1. Jesus is gone. He ain't coming back. Acts 1. Judas is gone. The keeper of the purse strings. He ain't coming back. Acts chapter 2, the church grows by 3,000 in a day. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John get thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 6, Greek widows are overlooked, and the tension that that brings out threatens to rip apart the church. And do you know what this prayerless bunch of folks do in every one of those scenarios? they have these prompt and impromptu prayer meetings. I imagine that they find themselves facing trouble and they think to themselves, what should we do since Jesus isn't here? And they're reminded, and they're like, man, if history's an indicator of the future, we're gonna work real hard and we're not going to find the solution at all but then i think at some point they remember no no, no but wait 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 jesus is here he's actually here he rose from the grave he's alive he's sitting next to god right now interceding for us he's here and the anxiety evaporates and they say to themselves why should we trouble ourselves if we know we can trouble him And what Jesus says to them and to us is that troubling him with our trouble is no trouble at all. That's the fuel. That's the gas. You have a Savior that is alive and well. He rose. Let that fill your prayer tank. That may have run dry let's pray Oh our father we thank you we thank you Lord that we had an incredible debt to pay and sin has been paid for and you haven't required any of us to pick up the check you've proved it to be the case by the fact that your son Our Savior has risen from the dead. He's alive and well. He's praying for us right now. Filling in the gaps of where our eloquence fails us, God. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of that truth. God, we pray that you would fill us with the strength that comes from surrendering our hearts completely to you it's in jesus christ's name we pray amen